to Bizarre Conspiracies. My name is Eric Patino, and I've been thinking about doing the intro like this. You know, the day of releasing, I record the intro. So that if there's something that I want to talk to you about, like all these riots, it's getting out of hand. So long are the days of a peaceful protest. We just have vandalisms going on, particularly here in my state of Texas as well. So... It's happening everywhere. Hopefully it calms down and we become more civilized again. But on to today's show, which is about war ghost stories. So what I'm talking about here is soldiers who have experienced ghost stories or you know, people who live on bases, uh, that sort of thing. So that's what me and Conrad talk about here. And I hope you enjoy it. Today I have Conrad Toll with me. Howdy. And we're going to be talking about haunted World War stories. It doesn't necessarily have to be World War One or World War Two. Just, just um, soldier stories, right, of the paranormal. And uh, something I wanted to talk about for a while because you, you don't normally hear it in some somewhat mainstream media when it comes to the paranormal. You hear a lot of, uh, you know, like we were talking about before we started the podcast, is the Amityville horror stuff like yeah. that. Th- those are those are always going to have more of the light uh the yeah. spotlight in terms of stories and stuff but it, it's pretty interesting that soldiers will go into into war and battle in a certain area and they'll experience some paranormal things as well and uh, it's especially interesting when you go somewhere like japan and we and we know from history that uh, japan has a lot of weird stuff <laughs> including the paranormal side of japan and so I got a uh, I got a couple of stories I want to share with you guys a little bit here and there and uh, so does Conrad so um who who wants to go first <laughs> All right well I'll start off with probably I would I wouldn't expect it to actually it's probably one of the more well known uh, ghosts of World War Two his name is Charlie That's about all we know about him but a little bit of backstory it's guessed that he was a sailor aboard the USS Arizona. Now, uh, I'm guessing most Americans probably know what the USS Arizona is, but I don't know how well know, how well it is known internationally. So uh, it was uh, one of the battleships at Pearl Harbor that was sunk. It was a World War I um, era battleship. It was considered a dreadnought, actually. So those are kind of a, a pre-battleship class of ship. Um, but it was modernized and so it was, it was, uh, fit for fighting in world war two. Now the, what happened on Pearl Harbor is, um, as you know, there was a bunch of attacks going on, uh, against all of the ships. Um, after the, I believe the second wave, the, the Arizona had made uh, preparations and readiness to sail out to sea. And it was a, trying to escape out of the Pearl Harbor. And the idea was if it got out to sea, it could sail away from uh, the combat area and just keep going. And um, it would be safe because it wouldn't be at the attack zone anymore. So that was the idea. So it had been ordered to retreat, essentially. But on its way out of the channel before it really got underway, the third wave, I believe, of Japanese Japanese bombers showed up, and seeing it making it escape, it was made uh, a primary target. 
to uh, Japanese dive bombers. So um, it was hit, um, I think, by four different bombs, and the the fourth bomb set off a large explosion that um, blew out, I think, most of the – either the rear or the front of the ship. It it blew up one of the main magazines and sank the the Arizona. And of of the ships that sank at Arizona – at, not at Arizona, at Pearl Harbor, it's one of the four that were not raised or scrapped or salvaged. Um, actually, most of the ships were salvaged, even the ones that sunk. Like, uh, I think the Utah, the Pennsylvania, the Arizona, and then one other sank. But it was, there was actually several that sank, but those were the ones that are considered totally sunk. Anyway, the reason why this one was never surfaced it's a few different reasons. First off, it was the most damaged of all the battleships. And secondly, it sank in the deepest water. It sank in the channel as it was trying to escape. So to get around to Charlie, what happened is uh, he's, he, he's just a ghost that is generally invisible. But um, he turns on faucets and changes the radio station all mm-hmm. over um, – all over, I, I think it's just the Hawaiian Islands, but it may just be the island where Pearl Harbor is. Um, but his presence is generally no, noticed a lot around um, the uh, Utah Memorial, not the Utah, the Arizona Memorial. So it's generally expected that they think that he was probably a sailor, but he apparently likes to throw objects around and make sounds. Um, but you never see him, but he's, he's mostly harmless, but people just like, ah, the faucet turned on again in the bathroom. So they go and they shut it off and go, well, it was Charlie again, or you'll be sitting, listening to the radio station and it changes channels. So, um, there's a, a another one though, that's, um, perhaps slightly more ominous, I suppose. (laughs) Uh, there was a, I couldn't find much information on this one. So I don't know exactly how true this is, but apparently there was a, a fellow who deserted his post uh, on the uh, Arizona and was either later executed or shot while, by planes while he was trying to escape or something like that. Uh, but he had abandoned his uh, post of watch and he's seen uh, keeping watch, just standing uh, over the uh, Arizona, keeping watch. So people will see someone in military uniform standing on the memorial, and it's not too uncommon. But like they'll they won't pay any attention to him, and he, he'll just be staring off into the distance. And um, they'll turn back around to look at him, and he won't be there anymore. You know, so the um, the theory is that he was a he's trying to fulfill his duty of um, abandoning his post on that day um there's a, a f- uh, another theory that charlie is one of the um because after the utah sank not the utah the arizona sank there was um a few sailors who were trapped in a airtight pocket deep inside the battleship for uh, 16 days before they um perished but according to a calendar that was found in the room with them it was 16 days after uh, Pearl Harbor, so it would have been uh, December, um, what December 24th that the calendar was stopped marked. So hmm. it's it's possible that Charlie could be one of those. 
Um, Interesting. But I don't am. So that's pretty cool. (laughs) There's actually um, a few different hauntings of um, Pearl Harbor. Um, Besides those ones, uh, there's a nearby airfield that's haunted, but there's a, a, you know, a lot of stories of hauntings uh, around Pearl Harbor. And I think the reason for that, um, I I guess we might get into theories a little more on why there's all these different theories about um, why there's all these, I suppose, similarities between all these war um, ghosts. But mm-hmm. it's just that it was such a shock and uh, there was a lot of people under confusion and they didn't understand why it was happening. Mm-hmm. But I suppose maybe we'll get more into that later on. But what, what do you have? Oh, well, I got one that pair up nicely with the story you just told. So I'm going to tell you about some ghost planes. Um, many people saw ghost planes during and after the war. Uh, fighter crafts uh, would appear and disappear without a trace. So there was actually one sighting that happened a year after the attack on Pearl Harbor. It was uh, when the United States Army's radar picked up the signal of an incoming plane, and a, a few pilots were sent out to investigate what it was. And when they returned, uh, they re- they had this amazing story. So they said they saw a plane, but it was an American P-40 that looked like it had been through a battle. And so <clears throat> the plane was said to uh, be covered in bullet holes with the landing gear missing with the pilot completely covered in blood, right? And the pilot had been seen, had seen the, uh, the plane suddenly crash as if it had just, you know, dropped out of the sky. And when they went to uh, investigate the crash, you know, the site where the plane fell, they, they found the plane, but they didn't find a single pilot anywhere and no blood. So that was one of them. I thought that was pretty cool. Hmm. I wonder if there was any P-40s at Pearl Harbor that were shot down. Cause uh, it was maybe who knows? I don't know if there are any planes that ever actually made it off the ground. Cause one of the first targets that they had was the airstrip to prevent any airplanes coming up and contesting against their bombers. Mm-hmm. Huh. But it's crazy to me that, you know, some pilots will go up there because they, they found a signal on the radar and they come across this plane that's completely shot up. There's a pilot that's visible to them, right? Mm-hmm. Completely bloody and uh, the plane falls and they go investigate it, but there's just, there's no pilot. Yeah, I, I ran into a story like that many, many years ago, but I, I tried finding it again for this podcast, but I couldn't find it. But it was similar that there was a shot up plane that was flying along, but it had no, and when they got close to it to see who was in it, there was uh, no pilot, no gunners because it was a it was a uh, B-24. So it, it had, you know, it's supposed to have, I think, a crew of eight or so. And there was nobody in the plane, but it was just flying along, shot up plane. And uh, they called it a ghost plane because it was flying from a place that it couldn't have been possibly flying from. It was flying in uh, from over the Atlantic. Ah, I got you. So it was spotted over England flying – well, not over England, but close to England heading in from the west. So there was Mm -hmm. no place that it could be coming from over there. And it kept flying and it went off towards France. I know I've come across a lot of stories where planes would disappear in the Bermuda Triangle, mm-hmm. but I thought that would be a completely different podcast because, <laughs> I mean, everything disappears in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there's uh, so there's another story I want to tell you, and it's called the Normandy Ghost. So nor if you you can to this day, there's a pl- plenty of sites you can visit uh, from World War II in, in Normandy, and one father 
decided to go with his daughter, which I believe she was seven years old. And while they were in France, nothing weird happened, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing out of the nor- uh, norm. In the year after they visited, his daughter spoke of, like, men and other things that she saw while she was there. And she described men pointing their guns at her and following her while they were being, uh, while they were doing tours uh, in the bunker areas. And she would describe them as holding behind, uh, hiding behind in co- uh, corners and moving around like soldiers would, which I thought was very interesting. So while this, uh, would probably for the most people be written off as, you know, she had an imagination. She was seven years old. She probably just saw whatever she wanted to see, right? Right. She was able to perfectly describe the uniforms on both sides of the conflict that she saw. And that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And I think we can, like you were saying, you know, there's some theories that we could probably get into about why these sites are haunted and the way they are. Yeah. <laughs> well, that. <laughs> well, let me tell you the, this next story that I have. And this one's definitely going to give you some food for the thought on what causes it. But, okay, it's, do you know about the USS Hornet? I do not. So there's actually many different ships called the USS Hornet, but there was two during World War II that were uh, aircraft carriers, both of them. One was sunk fairly early on in the war, I think in 1941. I think it's when it sunk. I'm, I'm not sure. But this uh, the second ship, um, they changed its name to USS Hornet to be a bit of a confusion because the USS Hornet had been, Hornet had been reported sunk by the Japanese prior – to that time because they bombed it and they said, well, it was heavily damaged. It sunk. But then it they, they actually were able to repair it and it didn't sink. Well, then the next time they're like, okay, we got it this time. So they named their new ship coming into the fleet the USS Hornet. So that way to add to the confusion of a, wait a minute, we sank this one already, you know. But um, this was one of the most successful carriers in the American fleet. Um it um, so it is been in it was in many different com, uh, combat scenarios all across the um, the Pacific. It had been bombed a few times. Uh, it uh, it had been in enough conflicts that um, it assisted or sank uh, over two thousand Japanese vessels. So by assisting, I mean it was in a conflict in which um, its presence helped um, win. So it, it doesn't actually necessarily have had to be like the main contributing factor, but like it was in an area where the other forces reacted to it being like, well, there's a carrier, so we have to do things in a slightly different method. And then a ship would, you know, put itself in a vulnerable position to a submarine and that submarine sank it. So, you know, it was a very successful carrier. Now, uh, it went on. Um, to later serve during the Vietnam War, where it actually operated from the Jap- Japanese mainland, um, assisting uh, in the Vietnam War. And then after that, it um, recovered the three astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Mitchell Collins, and Buzz Aldrin, when they landed their ship from landing, uh, when they landed their command module in the ocean uh, after the um, Apollo 11 mission. So, quite an amazing um, record this ship has. But did you know that it is also one of the most haunted ships in the U.S. Navy? 
So over 300 sailors have died on that ship during the attacks and, and the fires that were uh, um, started and, um, you know, the explosions that went off and due to um, also suicides as well. So over 300 deaths have happened on this one ship. There are many, many, many ships that have crews less than 300. 300 is actually a lot when you think about it. But <clears throat> continuing on, uh, it's now at a museum in California. And the there's tons of haunted stories about it. So, for instance, um, there's a... Uh, <laughs> there's, there's actually a few different pages I found dedicated to um, ghost stories about it. For instance, uh, there was a fellow who volunteered um, to help um, take care of it, and they were painting um, the, the ship. And when he he was sent off from the rest of them to go find more paint in the painting, um, in the supplies compartment, I suppose. And he was walking uh, below the hangar deck, and he saw another fellow that he thought was one of his... Um, co-workers because the fellow was wearing white and they were all wearing white painting suits um go into a side passage so he called after him and tried following the fellow and he kept and what he found is that passage that he followed this fellow into was a dead end but the fellow wasn't there and what he discovered later is he had seen what was a um common um a specter that is spotted on the hornet called the uh uh, uh, the oh, doesn't have its name. <laughs> There's a, a common specter that's seen on the Hornet wearing a, a navy dress uniform. Is what he actually saw, and you know, many different people that saw him, but that was his story. Uh, uh there's also uh one of the the restrooms in the uh, the Hornet. Um, there's uh, reports of you being able to hear voices near the sinks. Um, so there's a final story about that. There was another fellow that stayed overnight on the ship, and uh, the uh, the lights would turn on and off. So, <laughs> um, but the the ship the the switches on a ship are very robust. They are made to take water. You know, you don't make anything on a ship that's not waterproof. The electrical switches on a ship are very very prone to working properly. So having flickering lights on a boat is a very uncommon occurrence. And a, a light turning on and off without anyone being present is even weirder. Um, doo -doo -doo. <laughs> so there, one of the people that gives tours says that um, he was working on a ship one night when he was looking at a, a mooring line. And he said to himself, well, that ain't going to work. And behind him, he heard somebody say, uh, that isn't right. <clears throat> <laughs> so Could uh, be implying a lot of things. Yeah. So he thinks that there was a ghost trying to correct him on his grammar. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, he turned around and he went looking for the voice and he couldn't find anything. He was the only one in the area of that ship. So given its um, many myriad of stories of people walking calmly around the ship and disappearing into dead ends and mm. voices being heard at random spots and lights turning on and off on their own. It's uh, There's 
with dozens of these stories about the um it's pretty un- it's pretty unnerving though yeah uh, so how- here's the thing about combat on a ship imagine you were working on an aircraft carrier and uh, you're being bombed uh what do you think generally would be the average person's um response what do you think that they would be doing what would be what would they be doing what actions would they be taking and what would be their mental state? I mean, I assume some people would abandon ship, right? Uh, n- no, actually. Huh. Abandoning ship is one of the uh, worst things you can do on a boat that isn't sinking in a combat thing. Because if you jump overboard on a ship that isn't sinking, the people on the ship aren't going to care for your safety one bit. They're not going to try and rescue you. They're not <laughs> going to try and help you in any way. They're concentrating on the ship. How can they help me if they're being bombed, though? They wouldn't. They're not. They're just going to leave you in the ocean. Then they're going to probably continue going at max speed to try and avoid bombs and that sort of thing to make themselves the hardest target to hit and continue on with the mission. They'll be like, yeah, okay, well, that guy's overboard. I'm not going to even call man overboard. We've got more important things to worry about. (laughs) So, and then abandoning your post is a terrible idea as well. So, um... It's actually very rare that anyone would jump overboard. Oh, yeah, that's true. We're talking about a military ship. So what you would think is most people would be engaged in some sort of frantic action of some kind, preparing the ship or trying to – or keeping an eye on the sky or manning a machine gun or something like that. But 90% of the ship actually goes about their task just as if they weren't under attack. They are so well uh, versed in what their job is. They sit at their post. They don't really move. On a ship during World War II, I mean, think to them, they are all well aware of the fate of being on a sinking ship. Sinking ships are extremely dangerous because, you know, they cause a massive undertow where they suck you down with it. Getting stuck on a ship, abandoning the aircraft carrier is not a quick thing. If your ship sinks, odds are most of your crew, depending on how fast you sink, from uh, if you read the casualties of ships that have sunk, tons of people go down with the ship on some of them. And on other ones that sink, maybe three people die when the ship is abandoned. And uh, all of that is due to how fast the ship thinks, sinks. But if your ship gets hit and it starts to capsize or something like that, most ships actually explode as they're sinking some form or fashion something on the ship will end up detonating the magazine it's uh, fairly common um one of the historians um writes that one of the main causes of death of people banding ship was that a large percentage of the crew would be found dead in the water because of the a shock that was sent out from the massive explosion of the ship into the water around it killing anyone that was close to the ship within like 500 yards of the ship, the massive shock wave that goes through the water would kill people. So, and then getting stuck on a trip is a very real uh, possibility. So the people on ships during a world war were well aware of what their fate would be if the boat went down. So most of them kind of resigned their fate with the ship. It was, if the ship dies, I die. So, they had a, a almost a, a fatalistic sense when it comes to it of the, the best thing I can do 
is keep calm and just do my job to the best of my ability, right? So, and most of them are engaged in shooting down other in- incoming aircraft. Maybe at most, what, 10% of the ship is manning the aircraft guns, right? So I was, I was thinking that would be quite, here's a, so leading to our theories of why it is that it's one of the most haunted ships, since it was a ship that was attacked and bombed and lit on fire, imagine the what would happen to the spirits of these stoic people who are on this boat waiting for the bombs to come, knowing that there's nothing they can do about it and that the best thing they can do is just to continue on with their job. But yet they're all fairly highly energized and motivated people who all have a very common goal and they're all focused and tied in with so like this, all the i don't know the the fuel of what a regular soldier happens but with the calm collected uh, <laughs> um stoicness of a sailor so i think that's why you find that all these ghosts are all very calm quiet and collected walking around the ship Mm, it's interesting. Just going about their their method, ignoring everything around them, doing what they've always done, what they've trained, what they've drilled to do a thousand times. So even after death, they have this repetitive uh, duty to what they're doing. I don't know. Just <laughs> something for the th- uh, food for the thought. Interesting. So, well, we are coming. Well, we already on the time <laughs> for a break. So when we come back, we'll tell our final stories and we'll give you some theories about uh, why are these places the most haunted places, right? Mm-hmm. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And we're back from the break. So I'm going to tell you the uh, Japanese story that I have. So this takes place in. I believe it's Okinawa, and it's the Kenda Air Base. I hope I'm saying that right. Anyways, it's Building 2283, and rumor has it that the house was demolished in 2009, but the Building 2283 on Kenda uh, Base housing was, uh, it's still there. So it was notorious for being the single most haunted house in the entire U.S. military. So there was like this, uh, I'm guessing, a, um Air Force base on Okinawa for a bit, but then like they closed it down? Uh, I don't think they closed down the base. They just got rid of that one uh, housing area that uh, all these paranormal activities were happening. Because the, the base is still there, and I think uh, even the uh, the gate to enter into that section is haunted as well. Oh. Uh, no one lived there for a long time, and the building was reportedly used for storage because no one could stand to stay there. Uh, it was said that the Air Force officer murdered his entire family there before killing himself sometime in the 1970s. That's pretty insane. The next military family to move into the house experienced uh, feelings of unrest and paranoia until the father of the family stabbed everyone. So it became a storage right after that, but that didn't stop the house from being haunted. So wait, it's a double murder home. Apparently. Oh, wow. Um, people that would pass by report hearing sounds of children crying, a strange laughter, and in one instance, a report of a woman washing her hair in the abandoned house sink. That's really creepy. This is really creepy. Um, Kinda reportedly attempted to tear 
it down, but the workers attempting to destroy the building would report having headaches, hallucinations, and suffered a high rate of on-the-job injuries. How crazy is that? So, like, the building didn't even want or let you tear it down. <laughs> That's insane. Uh, other reports have cited ghostly phone calls, despite there not even being a phone line attached to the house anymore. They would still hear uh, the phone ring constantly. Faucets turning on by themselves, curtains opening, and even this, even a, uh, a sighting of the house itself glowing. Um, that's pretty creepy. That's like the next next level of paranormal. <laughs> now, you wouldn't happen to know what color it was glowing, would you? Uh, I do not. <sighs> there, uh, I believe there's a book currently being written about this, uh, this Air Force base, because like I said, there's also the gate that you enter into this area that's also haunted, and uh, there's a lot of stories with that. I believe there was a ghost actually caught on film, and it's up on YouTube for you to watch. All you have to do is just type in the, uh, Kinda Japanese Air Force Base or Building 2283, and you'll pretty much find it. Um, so yeah, and that is the story of the, uh, the Air Force Base, but there's, there's one more thing. It's a pretty wild one. Uh, there have been a few reports of people seeing a samurai warrior riding on his horse through the living room. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not just what? one, not just one report of one person, but several, more than one. Probably more than two of people seeing a samurai warrior riding his horse through the living room. And there have been reports of right after the samurai warrior would vanish through the walls because he would just ride his horse through the wall, right? There would, there, uh, blood would appear on that wall that he would vanish into. Crazy. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I saved one. I saved the best story for last. This is, uh, when you think of haunted war stories, yeah, the ghost planes, okay, I could probably deal with that, right? Yeah. You, you think of the Normandy ghosts of people seeing soldiers reenact the same things when they were dying? Okay. That, that's acceptable to a certain level. But when you go to, when you experience a house, in a military base, and first of all, when you think military base housing, you think, okay, yeah, nothing can go wrong here, right? It's a newly built building specifically for the soldiers to live in, right? Yeah. You wouldn't think, oh, this house is haunted. You wouldn't think that of a military building. And then something like this comes along, and you get ghost sightings, you get the house glowing itself like it's the house is a UFO. And you get samurai warriors riding through your your living room. Uh, the phone ringing when there's no phone line connected. Really weird stuff. <laughs> so my question to you, Conrad, is uh, you could probably live through uh, the ghosts and the uh, the ghost planes and stuff like that. Would you be able to live through this experience? No. Well, I mean. <laughs> Or would you want to? Would you want to? I wouldn't to? want to. No, no. It, because my theory is the the oldest, the, clearly the samurai is the oldest of these uh, apparitions. These other ones are new. So this was haunted before the building was built. The ground must have been haunted or something. Because I, I don't know exactly what it is. Uh, I'm guessing there was some sort of a battle there or something. 
Well, when you think of haunted grounds um, in the states, you would think of like an Indio Indian burial ground. Uh-huh. I don't know what they would have in Japan that's similar, but like I said, Japan has a history of hauntings. They have a history of really weird paranormal stuff, right? I would think more than any other country, in my opinion. Hmm. I, that's, that's pretty nuts. Yeah. So the thing is with with the uh, the double uh, homicide back to back. It was the father that both times, right? So the common mm-hmm. that's that's one commonality there. Um, but if I'm just trying to see how is it how could the two be connected to a samurai? <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe the samurai okay, was okay. a father as well. But here's the thing: the samurai was a soldier, and these two other fellows were soldiers, right? Maybe maybe that's the commonality there. This, or, or maybe the two fathers of the family were haunted by the samurai. Maybe. Maybe they were possessed by the samurai. Could have been. And the samurai doesn't like kids? I don't know. I mean, if it's the kids of your enemy and you kill the father, right? You would think that the kids would have a grudge and then would want to kill you as well. Right. So I guess if you like... So you think that maybe... You killed one, you gotta kill a, all of them. There's a, a guardian samurai there who's... Attacking the enemy soldiers that are invading his territory? Maybe, but here's the thing, though. Why would it be only be one housing unit? Maybe that's because that's where he fell. Maybe he was fighting and that's the land which he... Maybe he was... Because he was riding a horse, right? Maybe he was in some sort of a cavalry charge and that's where he was hit by an arrow and that's where he fell off of his horse and uh, he... No, because he and his horse probably died there together. So they probably hit by something like a catapult. I don't know. It's it's creepy anyways. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely, that's not a place I'd want to go for sure. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, what, what do you have? So I have one here about the um, World War I um, offensive, uh, the British offensive in a place called Passchendaele. Now, in 1917, uh, with the Americans newly entering the war, the British decided to make a counteroffensive before the Americans' troops showed up. So it was a, caught a little bit of a controversial move, and so it's still debated to these days on which one was the right decision to make, but I think the British were trying to get a surprise attack advantage. They did it on the coast of Belgium, and the idea was that they would have... Uh, several groups assault the German lines and they would uh, land uh, an offense. They'd have a, um, a naval landing behind German lines that would then push to the front. And with the, and the idea would be they would make a breakthrough along the coast and flank the whole line from the north down. So, uh, it was, it didn't quite go to plan the, I do believe that they were able to capture and make advances, but they did not break the German line, but it was quite a, a horrible battle. Uh, 40,000 total died. Jeez. Um, uh, and aerial photographs of the area show that it was probably, um, as many as, uh, a million, uh, shell, uh, shell holes in the area of a mile, a square mile. Uh, and it was in uh, the... <laughs> so the area around Passchendaele 
is in the lowlands and it's very wet there and it's close to the um, English Channel and it's very wet near the English Channel and it rains a lot and they did it during the winter and it rained a lot there and it was super muddy, ultra muddy. The land did not drain. They Mm -hmm. dug trenches. They were having trench warfare. It was probably the muddiest of the muddy trench warfare of the war. So in all the movies or ideas of the trench warfare, you always think about the mud, right? Mm-hmm. This was the muddiest battle of World War I. Um, and it, almost uh, of a quarter of all the soldiers of the 40 million, it was not 40 million, 400,000 died there. A quarter of those were never identified. Um, so the, there was quite a few interesting stories that came out of Passchendaele. Um, one... Uh, a soldier's diary uh, tells of the story of the time that he was awoken in his trench by his brother. And his brother, whom he had thought at the time to be dead, uh, put his hand over his mouth and told him to be quiet and to get up and follow him quickly. So he grabbed his gear and he hopped out of the, uh, the trench, not the trench, but the um, the area of the trench. He was in a uh, like a little barracks that was dug into the trench. He left that barracks and he followed his brother down the line. And as they got out of the trench, just a few, um, just a bit later, he heard a shell come whizzing in and explode in the barracks behind him. So he spun around to look and he turned back to his brother and his brother wasn't there anymore. Later, mm-hmm. he found out that his brother, whom he had presumed to be dead, was actually dead. So that his brother was never there. Interesting. Um, there was a few other um, phenomenons that happened at the uh, place of Passchendaele, but for the most part, the the hauntings didn't really start until after the war. Now, uh, Passchendaele is a, a you know the grass and the trees and all that have grown back, but now it um, what you hear is you hear a ton of phantom sounds. You don't really see very many specters or combat but you hear sounds sometimes it's screams and cries of the wounded uh, other times you hear shells just whizzing and landing and exploding in the distance mm-hmm. um uh, and then you hear a, a sporadic gunfire as well just always off in the distance mm-hmm. and you know nothing's ever close but you hear the sounds of war in the background hmm so I think Passchendaele was overall considered a failure. Uh, the British made a uh, surprise offensive in the winter of uh, 1917. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting, man. <clears throat> well, I got uh, I got one more. What, what do you want to end with that one, and I'll tell my next story. Sure. <laughs> you want to make? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think I think I know which one you're talking about. I think so, you do. This next one is probably I couldn't find very much about it, but apparently Stalingrad is a very haunted city. You know, I've heard a few stories about it, but I never looked into them. So um, uh, there was a uh, so Stalingrad was I think the bloodiest battle of World War Two. I'm not too sure about that one, but it was. It, the worst of the the Russian front, um, where the 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 Russians held onto Stalingrad and stopped the uh, Nazi counter uh, not counteroffensive, they the the Russians had the counteroffensive, <laughs> uh, but they stopped the the German offense. So mm-hmm. 
uh, it was, I believe, a two-year siege of Stalingrad, um, and the town was practically turned into rubble, uh, the city, uh, and there was a, an area in the middle of it known as uh, uh, a bloody alley or something like that, where just, you know, there was massive casualties in Stalingrad, but this area was well known for the uh, most of the, it was the, the death zone. It was, <laughs> and it, I believe it's in the north northern sector uh, on the east side of the river. So if you're looking at the Stalingrad from top down, you'll see how there's a river that runs mostly north to west, and it was on the east side, which Stalingrad at the time was smaller than it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the city's much larger, but um, so most of the city was on the east side anyway. But it was at the the northern end of the city. Um, but even to this day, stalling, whenever they're doing things like, uh, repairing the plumbing or they're, uh, digging, uh, and foundation or they're, I don't know, they're doing any sort of digging construction wise in Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. It is not uncommon for them to find tons and tons of bodies. Oh, really? Like every year there's like a new list of, um, Bodies added to the, uh, the Stalingrad uh, siege casualties. Hmm. Um, so uh, I'm sure there's tons of stories. I didn't find any. Maybe because I didn't. I can't read Russian. I'm guessing <laughs> that most of the because I don't know if there's all that many English tourists that go to Stalingrad. You can't read Russian, Conrad. I cannot. <laughs> um. Um. Bum, bum, bum. So. The it it was a siege, a modern siege. <laughs> so people would stack up on top of each other. There was great amounts of starvation. People would hide roughly in the same area. There was uh, tons of Russian snipers who got insane amounts of kills. If you look at the uh, – if you go to uh, Wikipedia and you look up uh, snipers by kill count, you'll find that most of them are Russian and that's because of Stalingrad, practically. Mm. Um, um, but when it comes to um, the stories uh, of of hauntings, uh, generally you'll find that there are people that they they report. Um, for instance, there's this um, the ghost of um, of a of a, a well, there was one. There isn't any more. This one in particular, but this of this woman being drugged from the rubble. A, a wounded woman. Uh, I guess the building collapsed in on her, and so you would hear her screams. And it wasn't until they this area that they uh, found a, uh, a bunch of bodies buried in rubble, uh, and they d- they took them out and gave them a proper burial. The um, the sighting ceased, but until that time, there was uh, the. Uh, you would hear wails and screaming from that area, and occasionally people would see visions of this trapped woman. Mm. So, uh, and th- there's quite a, a few. <laughs> the, the thing is, when you read about it, the uh, the the horror of what they went through in uh, Stalingrad, Stalingrad, Lenin, and Leningrad were, I think, <laughs> probably the. Uh, worst places to have been in World War II. I'm not 100% positive about that, but, ah. I'll, I'll take your word for it. 
sounds pretty gruesome. Yeah, because people they would be stuck in these areas where they wouldn't they'd be afraid to leave and the plumbing would be out, they'd run out of food, they would resort right. to cannibalism. Uh yeah. Mm, the taste of human. And the, besides that you have uh the the Germans who uh during the invasion of Russia uh often uh treated the, the Russians quite poorly. They would slaughter the inhabitants by the dozens. They would round up uh, uh, children and bleed them to death and use their blood in uh, transfusions in their hospitals. There was... Uh, um There was... Uh, they burned cities down. They would have uh, villagers uh, clear minefields by just marching them across... Uh, Places like that. The Germans were, uh, the Russians were not very kindly to the Germans when they caught them. Of the 10,000, not 10,000, 100,000 Germans who surrendered at Stalingrad, mm. uh, I think only a, a, a very small percentage of them, like five or eight percent, survived German uh, Russian captivity. Mm. So, yeah, the slaughter on both ends. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. I think, so, there's quite a few stories. I can't find many of them, but kept finding tons of people like, oh, yeah, Stalingrad's as haunted as you can get. But not very many stories I could dig up, I'm afraid. I'm sure we could probably find a couple of books that have been written about it. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, I did run across a few books that were that looked pretty good, but I, I didn't buy any. <laughs> no. um, not about Stalingrad itself. And there might have been a few about Stalingrad, but there was um, <laughs> someone who did a Pretty much what we did, but mm. a lot more extensive research about um, different reporting throughout World Wars. There was one fella who just did a book about people who spotted ghosts during the actual war. Like um, the fella whose brother came and got him out of the barracks before it right. Uh, right. detonated. All right. Well, what's your story? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's kind of an like an honorable mention because it has nothing to do with ghosts or uh, like a haunted kind of area. Although maybe it is haunted area now because of it. But at the time the story was taken, which is around 1965 because it happened during the Vietnam War, and Marines would often recruit, uh, you know, the local people to help them guide uh, through the through the forest, right? Uh, because in some areas, uh, they were like really dense and, you know, some of the darkest parts of the jungle and they would need uh, a local civilian to like help them guide through it to, to where they needed to go. But there was a couple of areas that the locals wouldn't go uh, into or um, even cl uh, close to it. And they found out that there's a thing, uh, some, I don't know what you call it. Um, I have my suspicion about what it is because it sounds exactly like a Bigfoot, but they called it a ma. And uh, it occupied, like, in, in the trees, okay? And the Marines, uh, or the local people, would warn the uh, the Marines, uh, don't go into the that area because uh, there are reanimated corpses awaiting you there if you enter. So, of course, the Marines being Marines, right, they kind of shrugged it off as folklore of the areas. Didn't necessarily believe it, but it became very real for them because uh, the uh, the American troops would start report begin to report these kind of ghoulish figures moving supernaturally through the trees, 
and and others would report these fanged creatures with black eyes that would kidnap and eat the captured troops. Kind of freaky. In one encounter, they found that these creatures were bulletproof as well. Like shooting at them would wouldn't affect. And it didn't matter what type of uh, what time of day it was. Could have been in in the uh, the broad daylight. Could have been at night. They were being captured and they were being surrounded as well. So um, yeah, they decided what is the best way <laughs> to get rid of these creatures. Uh, flamethrowers, apparently. So they, they used some flamethrowers just to get by. Like, they were still being bothered, they were still being harassed by these creatures, but, but some of them were able to live through this, uh, just to get through the area with flamethrowers, which was freaking crazy. But, uh, to me, this, these creatures, because they, they, uh, there were a couple of reports that they said that they were very hairy creatures, they, they're very tall creatures, very strong, and so immediately, to my mind, I think, maybe, um, but did it say that they were gorilla or ape-like? They said they were not gorillas and they were not apes. Hmm. But did they say they had similarities? Uh, not really. Hmm. So a lot of the reports came from the actual troops, not the uh, not the locals. And they would report them as they were they they kind of looked like men, but they were just hairy men of the jungle. Is what they would describe them. Bulletproof, but not fireproof. Well, I don't know if they successfully killed any of these creatures, but they were just able to pass by because of it. I guess they, uh, I mean, I don't think, uh, Gorilla or Bigfoot would run towards you if you had a flamethrower. <laughs> right? Like, I don't think they would run into a flame. Yeah. All right. Well, that will do it for today. Thank you for listening to Bizarre Conspiracies, and as always, you can follow us on any social media. Just search for Bizarre Conspiracies. If you want to email me, Conrad, or Lisa, you can do so at bizarreconspiracies at gmail.com. That's one word, bizarreconspiracies at gmail.com. We'll catch you in the next episode.